This is episode one zero of Free as in Freedom for Tuesday, the 24th of May, 2011 of the Common Era. I'm Bradley Kuhn. I'm Don Lynch. And this is Free as in Freedom. What, Dan, what are you doing here? Yeah, uh, Karen couldn't make it this week, unfortunately, so um, she sent her uh, a note in, so I had to come in and, and substitute. Yeah, I actually I actually knew that. I don't think I can trick the listeners uh, into believing <laughs> that we set up our recorders and got ready to do it, and then uh, and then I didn't even know you were here. But yes, that's quite right. Uh, Karen uh, Karen is is uh, actually by the time our listeners hear this, Karen will have uh, will have been married. Um, it's actually the day we're recording. She's getting married tonight. I'm going to the wedding this evening. Uh, but uh, she had a lot to do. She was still. I, I want to tell our listeners she was still you know, raring to record this, and she was going to make time, and I was going to meet. Her her for 30 minutes in between her meetings for setting up the wedding and i finally convinced her that she didn't have to do it she did not want to uh, uh to give up on our listeners but i i, I told her that that we, all our listeners would understand that she's got a wedding to plan and then and and, and it was okay if she missed an episode or two yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think most people would understand that. I, I now have a really great image in my head of, of Karen kind of walking along in full wedding gown and you with the microphone going, so what do you think about the new, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whatever. But, yeah. but the, the upside of this is is for those listeners that have heard us many times reference the, the illustrious uh, producer Dan, they now get to hear your voice. Uh, of course, they may have heard your voice already on the various other podcasts, uh, both uh, as a regular host of Linux Outlaws and as the, I guess, sole host of Rat Hole Radio and also the occasionalist of Floss Weekly. So uh, so people have had an opportunity to hear your voice, but maybe there's a listener or two who hasn't heard your voice before. Yeah, it's, ni- it's nice to be here. Um, I, I, I quite liked your description of me as a silent partner earlier, <laughs> earlier on in the week. I thought that was quite nice. So I've broken my silence now. I'm coming out with a tell-all yeah. book about, about phrase and freedom. <laughs> It's true. You've heard all the raw audio before your magic editing and uh, making it all sound good. So, uh, so and all the little outtakes uh, that we, uh, although we do usually uh, put an outtake on ours as well. But uh, you've heard you've heard them all, of course. I have. Yeah, yeah. I've been I've been there. I've been a silent witness, as the uh, saying goes. Um, so, have you, I have to ask you, as the producer, have you unplugged your power supply this time from the laptop so we don't get? Oh, um, I didn't actually. Good, good question. Oh, you didn't. I just did uh, that. Uh, so should we start over or should uh, no or should no let's, just, uh, it might be quite funny let's do it now um. <laughs> okay it's done uh, I have done I have done it yeah I wasn't even thinking of that because I actually have a very different setup because usually we're at Karen's apartment and so mm. I just have my laptop on her table and so forth but here I'm actually at my office so I have my normal setup and it's all different so uh, maybe it won't be as bad I don't know but uh, I did unplug it now so it should be okay uh, thank you for reminding me I that's no completely problem. forgot it, it's it's a I mean I don't want to get too far off topic but it is a uh, uh, yeah, it is a really difficult kind of thing. I, I, I get that problem a lot over on, on my machines as well. They always put the components too close together inside these modern-day laptops and things, and, and the power supply is just too close to the sound inputs. Yeah, well, the interesting thing is I use a USB sound card. So I actually, uh. it's coming out of the USB. It's not like I'm using the onboard sound card. So it's uh. actually kind of weird that it messes with it. But uh, as you said, laptops are really small. Everything's really close, and, and it's uh, it's difficult. I mean, obviously, this has always been sort of a hacked-together thing. We got this microphone that, that you recommended we get, um, but then I've been doing everything else with my laptop and using A-Record. So, I, so it's not like I'm using really uh, professional tools like you do. I just have, uh, I just yeah. have my little A-Record command that I run to record everything. 
Ah, it does the same job. It, it does a good job. Um, yeah, it sound, always sounds good to me. So um, we got, um, t- we're going to carry on with the stuff from the Linux Collaboration Summit. Is that right? That's that's absolutely correct. Yeah. So so this is our our last talk that we recorded uh, uh, that we have, and I, I hope folks uh, haven't been. Uh, I, I've seen feedback on Identica and stuff. It sounds like people are enjoying hearing these talks. I mean, it, I admit it's been a little lazy uh, for us and Karen, and now for for me and Dan to <laughs> all we have to do is record little intros and, and outros uh, for for the stuff. But but I think the talks were really good, and it was. Uh, I mean, I was proud of the track because I, I put the track together and 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 recruit. Actually, I recruited all the speakers except for our speaker today. Our speaker today. I submitted independently, which I was really excited about, uh, because because uh, it's a topic, uh, as you know, Dan, near and dear to my heart. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and um, I mean, we should we should say it. it's uh, Matt Garrett from Red Hat, who's um, a well-known uh, Linux developer. He's done a lot of stuff with uh, power management, as you kind of said in your intro, and uh, he does suspend and resume. That's the the joke is that he does suspend and resume and resume and suspend. Yeah, he he always corrects people. He always says he says no. I work on power management, and 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 the reason I hear he does that is because people. If you if you said he's made suspend and resume work, then people just bring him laptops and say make make suspend and resume work for me, please, on this <laughs> laptop. Um, so it's better if he talks about. And, and plus, he does a lot more. He's he's basically uh, worked on the entire power management subsystem within Linux. Wow. Yeah, that's that's impressive, and um, he's a fellow uh, fellow Brit as well. So uh, he he's got a, a nice British accent for you to go with mine. So it's a it's a real uh, British fest today. Well, that's that's good. Uh, well, you know, people in the U.S. always think British people sound better. You know, really? it's, the, the British accent. Oh yeah, generally speaking, people in the U.S. If you say something with a British accent, people are impressed. It's it's a thing in the U.S. <laughs> that, that if you have a British accent, people say, "Oh, he must be smart. He has a British accent," and and it's it's really yeah. funny actually. All right, okay, that's interesting because over here there's a kind of a perception that um, I've heard people like Stephen Fry, who's done a lot of work in America, say that that when he ever, whenever he does uh, interviews and things with, with Americans, they always seem to be more relaxed at recording stuff and, and more prepared for that kind of thing. Whereas the British people tend to need a bit of training before before we get into the media thing. I suppose I don't know. It's interesting. Maybe I think it's a, it's probably a generalization. Anyway, it really depends on the person. Oh, of course. Yeah, it's it's just a perception thing. I think that I think that people just just British accents sound more posh to yeah, people in the true, United yeah. States, and so they think, oh, yeah, it's a very impressive. You have a British accent. Yeah, um, if it's a real and, one as and, well, and not like Dick Van Dyke or something in his gold blonde <laughs> Mary Poppins or whatever. It is. Yeah, I heard, I heard an interview with him recently where he where he says that he he hates going to the United Kingdom because because uh, well, not, not he hates he doesn't hate it, but but yeah. he always anytime he's in the United Kingdom he he runs into somebody who said who gives him. <laughs> hard time about his accent and Mary Poppins. <laughs> Sounds good. Anyway, so as I said, I'm, uh, I've got people on Identica were telling me to keep you in line and to keep you on topic today, but instead I've just clo- totally taken you right off topic. So you're, you're the one who brought up Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. I did, all. exactly. That's what I mean. So I've led you right off topic. Um, so meanwhile, back at the topic, then uh, we've got um, yeah this, this great talk by Matt Garrett on GPL enforcement, which, as you said, is a, is a subject very close to your heart. Yeah, and so uh, so I hope folks enjoy it, and uh, and and we'll we'll wrap up and, and talk about the talk afterwards, uh, and also we will put the slides in the show notes. Matthew gave us his slides and uh, and uh, released them under CC by SA for us, so they'll be up on the, the show notes. So if you want to follow along with with Matthew's slides, uh, you should go and grab them now uh, off the website and bring them up on the screen so that you can follow along with the slides uh, as you listen to us talk. glad we have such an awesome turnout. Uh, it's always tough, tough to get people to this track, especially this year because the 
intrepid Karen Copenhaver is in a different meeting and wasn't able to chair it, but I am, I am Plan B, chairing the track today. And we have, I think, a really great group of speakers. The first speaker is Matthew Garrett. He's a Linux developer, probably best known for his power management uh, work in Linux. But today he's going to be talking about a subject near and dear to my heart, which I love him for that he's doing, which is enforcing the GPL on the Linux kernel. Hi. Thanks. Um, so, as Bradley said, my name is Matthew Garrett. I work for Red Hat, uh, but should emphasize that I am not representing the company's opinion in any of these matters. This is personally, uh, this is purely something that I engage in as a personal activity. Uh, so, where to begin? The Linux kernel. It's, it's a wonderful piece of software. It's huge. There's lots of it. An amazing number of people contribute to every version of Linux. On average, there are for each release, over a thousand different people contributing, and it's not always the same thousand between releases. There's over 150 different companies contributing to each release of Linux. If you perform one of those, you know, hand-wavy, run this piece of software against your code base, it counts the number of lines of code and then works out some estimates of how much money you need to spend to implement that, you're looking at over a billion dollars in order to rewrite Linux from scratch and create something that is as functional as it currently is. So the Linux kernel has worth. And if you're a company who wants to produce a device, then Linux is a pretty compelling choice to run on that device. You have broad hardware support. Linux runs on more devices than any other operating system. We beat NetBSD a really long time ago. Nowadays, does it run Linux? The answer is probably yes. Whereas NetBSD doesn't really work on more than two processors. But there's widespread engineering availability. You can go to a huge number of people and companies around the world and they will write Linux code for you. If you have a hardware platform and you're looking for somebody to add extra support for your platform rather than developing it in-house, you can do that. And there's a range of user space code that you can put on top of your kernel. Android's an obvious example, and we're seeing a lot of take up of that. Migo will be an alternative as well. You can run embedded Qt. There's You're really not limit, terribly limited in terms of what you want to run on top of those. And it's free. You can get all of this and then modify it in-house and you don't have to pay anybody anything. So we unsurprisingly are seeing Linux in a huge number of places. You can walk into a number of stores and see Linux. You can buy a TV and it's probably running Linux now. It's kind of terrifying. So Linux, cheap, there's no financial compensation required in order to gain the right to use Linux. And this is an obvious distinction when it comes to choosing between Linux and, say, Windows. And further, there, well, okay, the main distinction between Linux and the BSDs, other than the fact that Linux probably works on your hardware and the BSDs probably don't, is that there are a couple of strings attached. You are required to follow the terms of the license. And license compliance in Linux is pretty straightforward. 
Linus is released under the terms of the GNU project's general public license version 2. Unlike many other pieces of software under this license, it is purely under version 2. You may not, at your option, use any later version. Section 3 of the GPL describes the uh, necessary source code availability to recipients of the software. And there are two relevant uh, clauses here. There is a third clause. It cannot be used if you're distributing commercially and therefore isn't really relevant for this discussion. But that's kind of wordy. In a nutshell, when you give somebody something that contains Linux, you must either give them the source code at the same time as you give them the binary, or you must provide an offer to provide the source on request. Now, that offer has to be good for any third party. If you distribute under this clause, then you may not restrict the availability of source code to people who have received the device. If they get the device, if they get the offer, and they give the offer to someone else, then you have to give the source code to them as well. But it's really not particularly difficult. It's fine to just have this in your device's documentation and then put the source code on the website. You can send it out on CDs if you want to. You don't have to. There's no real reason for you to do that. So if you're a company and if you have a moderate number of employees, it's probably not really terribly difficult to have somebody whose responsibility it is to just make sure that you include the correct text in your documentation and that the source code is put on the website. It's actually far more straightforward in most cases to do this than it is to ensure that every copy of every Microsoft product you're running in your company is legal, paid for, and you have the appropriate documentation so that when Microsoft comes around, you don't end up paying them bags and bags of money. So is this easy? Yes, it's easy. Hooray. Uh, unfortunately, obviously, well, in some cases it's good that this story doesn't really end well because otherwise I wouldn't be able to be here and talk to you about this. But, yeah, what we see is that despite compliance with the terms of the license being straightforward, simple, vendors are very, very bad at actually complying with the license. So I'm going to spend some time talking about Android. Um, in this case, I should just emphasize that this I'm not seeking to pick on Android here. This is not intended to be a criticism of Google in any way. Android is something I looked at because a huge number of Linux running devices are running Android. It's simply a way of selecting a representative sample of Linux devices. And you know, there's equivalence amongst all these devices at some level. So I, over Christmas, over the vacation, I, I was kind of bored. Um, there's, there's not really any other way to justify this. And I spent <laughs> a morning going through, uh, basically trying to form a, a list of Android tablets. Uh, tablets are, Apple have this unfortunately irritating habit of creating new markets, like, uh, or rather turning existing markets into useful markets filled with compelling products. And so the iPhone obviously changed the phone market fairly considerably. The iPad suddenly turned tablets from devices that 
were small, generally completely useless, into things that people wanted to buy. You can't license the Apple operating system. You can't put iOS on your own tablets. So if you want to compete in that market, you need an alternative operating system. Android is a pretty obvious alternative. It's touch-based, so uh, it's already got a lot of the functionality that you would expect to have for tablets. There's a lot of developers. uh, There's a huge application base in the Android market, and although in many cases these tablets are not licensed through uh, Google, and therefore they do not have the Google market applications, so you're limited to what you can get out of other markets. And there's a huge number of system-on-chip vendors who will give you kernels that support Android. Um, They have additional Android functionality. And also, uh, like the Linux kernel, Android's free. So, hey, you're going to produce something that competes with Apple, and you can spend much less on development. You don't have to spend all that much on... Well, there's no per-device cost for the software that you're shipping on it. Uh, As a result, there's a huge number of Android tablets on the market. There's... um, well over 200. Many of those are probably the same tablet with a different name on, I'll be honest about that, but in terms of vendors and models, you're looking at hundreds of these. If you decide you want to build an Android tablet, you can buy parts from a bunch of different vendors. Uh, Samsung, TI, Qualcomm, NVIDIA are big into producing chips that you can run Androids on. Uh, those are vendors that you kind of expect to be in this space. NVIDIA possibly is the most recent entry into the ARM market of those, but they're companies you've heard of. They're respectable enterprises. But we've also seen a huge number of new vendors. Uh, that's not how you spell creative. I should really have proofread this better. But we're seeing a bunch of new vendors, mostly in the Far East. Uh, companies you've probably never heard of, like Telechips, uh, Wonder Media, Rockchip. ZTE, I, I still don't really even know who they are. But um, And then there are some vendors that you really don't expect to be doing this kind of thing. Creative have a subsidiary called uh, Xi Labs, and they make their own ARM system on chip, which came as a surprise to me. I wasn't really. Creative still makes me think of sound cards rather than ARM mobile platforms. The SOC vendors generally do not provide their code directly to end users. There is no business relationship, and as a result, they do not have any responsibility under the GPL to the consumer. So that means that there's... um, there's no requirement on the part of the system-on-chip vendor to provide you with the source code to the kernel. The business relationship that exists is between you and the tablet manufacturer rather than you and the system-on-chip vendor. So we've seen some cases where the um, the system-on-chip vendor has released source code to the public. Telechips have done that uh, for their previous platform, and apparently it doesn't really build. Uh, Wonder Media provided it after a lot of pressure. <coughs> But that's, we can't think about the system on chip vendors as being responsible for this. We can't generally go after them and demand that they abide by the terms of the GPL. So mostly I'm going to be talking about the tablet vendors themselves. 
Cheap tablets are flooding the US market. Like I said, there's over 200 of these devices available in various markets, and you can now go into stores pretty much anywhere in the US and see Android tablets. And many of these are companies that... I never had the expectation that I could walk into Bed Bath & Beyond and leave with a device running Linux. <laughs> but now you can. Um, it, well, when I say running Linux, uh, sometimes they're more sort of flailing gradually along the ground rather than running. But Linux is now pretty much ubiquitous in the market. You can go to these places, you can buy devices, and you can come home and turn them on, and you can end up playing games involving bouncing cows or angry birds. So, hooray for Linux. Uh, we're getting it into people's hands. The vast majority of these tablets make no pretense whatsoever when it comes to license compliance. I'm sure you're shocked by this. I know I wasn't. You get these tablets, they will typically have either no documentation or the documentation will be limited to insert plug into socket, turn on. Uh... In some cases, you see excellent things like uh, the Google settings. Uh, when you go into Android, you can go to the settings. There's an About This Device menu, and under there, there's legal information, and that's supposed to include the open source licenses. On some of these devices, if you hit that, you get an error. Uh, in other cases, you get a copy of the license. And, well, okay, I, knew, I now have further evidence that it contains GPL material, Often the licenses list will be incomplete. It's generated by Google, and often they, the tablet vendors have actually added extra GPL code and not updated the license file. The license file in itself could perhaps be argued to, um, to construe and offer to write source code. I, you would probably want to speak to a lawyer to determine whether or not that's true. But that's the closest you get. You know that it contains GPL material, if you're lucky, and you have otherwise no direct means of obtaining the source code. There's no instructions as to what you should do in order to get the source code. So the first of these, um, Barnes & Noble, I, they produce a device called the Nook. It's, uh, it's an ebook reader, runs Android. There's two versions. There's the black and white one, which uses an e-ink screen, and then there's the Nook Color, which is released. And so the original look was released the end of 2009 and the color was released the end of 2010 I bought one of these devices and it actually said um, in the legal page you can download the source code from here okay, except there wasn't a link so I called technical support and technical support were helpful, friendly and had absolutely no idea what I was talking about so after a while they said okay, yeah um, we, we'll get back to you on that and obviously, they, they didn't. <laughs> that didn't really happen. After a while, I ended up uh, running strings against the binary. Um, that managed to get me uh, a username from their build system. And then I managed to use that to identify the person at the contractor who had built the kernel. So I emailed them directly saying... I realize that this isn't actually your responsibility, but 
do you have the source code? And they said, well, yes, obviously they did have the source code, but contractually it belonged to Barnes & Noble. But, uh, yeah, here's the email address of the vice president of Android development at Google, at uh, Barnes & Noble. So I contacted them, and they said, oh, oh, I'm um, sorry. Yes, we'll work that out. Um, yeah, no, we, nobody told us that it was missing. And eventually they provided some source codes, and it turned out it was actually the wrong source codes. And then a month later, they finally put up the correct source codes. And now it was compliant. The Not Color was released, and oddly enough, exactly, pretty much exactly the same thing happened. Um, the download page for the source code didn't actually contain the source code. But this time, I called the vice president's office again directly, and this time they had the source codes up a week later. So some sort of progress had been made. ViewSonic produce a range of tablets. One of them, uh, there's the ViewPads, and there's the G-Tablets. The G-Tablets are more consumer-oriented device. The ViewPads, a kind of business market device. Lots of people are buying the G-Tablets. It's, uh, it was the first tablet released in the American market based on the NVIDIA Tegra 2 platform. Um, it's, it's pretty nice hardware. It, it didn't come with source code. And people had been calling ViewSonic for some time, and they weren't getting any source code. Um, Eventually, ViewSonic said on their Twitter account that they had absolutely no intention of releasing the source code. The user interface was a it was a non-standard layer on top of Android. They released um, it. Turned out the contractors who designed that were based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. In fact, they were about fifteen minutes away from where I lived. So I went and visited them and pointed out that you know, under the they were distributing these binaries from their website. Uh, this could be legally problematic for them if. The source codes weren't available. And uh, suddenly they, well, they said that, right, they, again, they were very sorry, but uh, it belonged to ViewSonic. They couldn't do anything directly, but they would get back to me. And this time they did, and the source codes appeared. And that was great. The Entourage Edge, um, I don't really know who Entourage are, but uh, they, the source codes there. Um, a bunch of customers had spent some time complaining, and eventually source codes appeared. There are better vendors, um, Samsung and Dell are actually pretty good at getting the source code released around the same time as they release the device without you having to hunt them down first. That's great. So I just realized that I have no idea what time it is. I'll tell you when it's time. Okay. So in the end, after looking at my list of around 200 tablets, I found that fewer than 20 appeared to come with uh, any kind of source code. And when I say compliant there, I've generally only been looking for the kernel. In a lot of cases, there are user space components that are also under the GPL. And in many cases, they have not provided the source code to those. While this is still obviously legally problematic, from a practical viewpoint, it's much less of an issue since, generally speaking, they have not modified the source code to the user space components in any way. So while strictly that code should be made available, practically you can build the same applications yourself with a little bit more effort. The phone market is better. The majority of Android phones in the US market come with a valid offer for source code, and you can obtain that source code. It's not perfect, though. 
Source releases often only appear a significant period of time after the binaries. HTC uh, have got a lot of press for this. HTC have a policy where every time they release a firmware update or a new phone, somebody emails them asking for the source code, and HTC email back saying that they will release the source code within 90 to 120 days. This is an interesting interpretation of the licensing terms and not one that anybody who was involved in writing the license agrees with, um, was the nobody has as yet sued them. So HTC have got a lot of publicity about this. They're not, while they always mention this 90 to 120 days, the source code generally actually appears within a month of the device appearing. And they're, they're the most obvious example other vendors tend to be as bad. Again, it's very rare that when you buy a brand new Android phone, the source code will be available the same day. It's typically a couple of weeks to a month later before it appears. Most roller have also been problematic from this viewpoint. The source is not available on day one. That's true for the big vendors. The small vendors, again, really don't seem to care. Companies like Kayakora, and I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it correctly, they have no source available. Um, there are people working with them trying to obtain the source code. As yet, nothing has happened. So why is the situation this bad? And in the case of the cheap tablets that you tend to pick up in pharmacies here, um, as opposed to the ones that you buy from Canadian pharmacies. And that's a kind of different story. There's a lot of these are devices that have been bought in bulk and then rebadged. The, so we see names that are reasonably common in bits of the US market, like Craig, who produce cheap low-end electronics. Craig did not design the tablet. Craig had no input into the tablet. The binaries running on it were not created by Craig. Craig have never seen the source codes. They buy these devices, put their names on them, box them, and ship them. And they don't engage in any legal vetting at all in the process. So often they've just bought these things from China. They assume everything's fine. They ship them to stores. That's it. Other times, they uh, it's just a issue of priorities. The uh, the source release is not part of the product release process. We have, especially in the case of the phone vendors, they build a firmware update and then they have a process where that firmware update goes through QA and then gets pushed out to phones. That process does not include a tick box marked make source available. Uh, often when we see, even if it's part of the original product release process, Source code will be put up around the time that the product is released. The firmware updates that are released later will often not have corresponding source code updates. Um, again, we saw that several times with HTC, to the extent where somebody actually had to disassemble a chunk of the kernel in a firmware update in order to demonstrate conclusively that it did not match the source codes that was being provided before HTC would actually admit that maybe, yes, there was some new source code. And sometimes companies know and just don't care. It's uh, 
it's an acceptable risk when engaged in doing business. And it's true that, by and large, when you're shipping a product, you're always leaving yourself open to some legal liability in some way. And if you don't think there's any real likelihood that anybody will take you to court, then why bother spending money on doing the right thing? And in that case, it's, well, we're not able to justify the expense of the appropriate auditing of all the code we update. Uh, this is not a new problem. Um, we've been seeing infringing devices being shipped since at least the late 90s, early 2000s. It's not as often mostly with uh, internet routers. Um, there was a... As wireless access points and so on became more common, um, the majority of these were based on Linux. And since the alternative was VxWorks, and you had to pay licensing fees for that. Many of these devices originally did not come with any kind of source code. People started working on obtaining source around that time. GPLviolations.org is the best-known organization that's been involved in this. Uh, it's been... Uh, it was originally set up by Harold Velter, who wrote the majority of the NetFilter code in the Linux kernel and holds the copyright on that, which means that he has the authority to engage in direct legal action against vendors shipping non-compliant code. And there have been several significant successes there, mostly in Europe and against major companies. Source has been obtained. There's typically not a great deal of publicity about this at the time. A lot of this is just uh, low-key, quiet negotiations with the company in an attempt to avoid legal action. It takes a long time, and at the end of it, you have the source code that you were supposed to have in the first place. The Software Freedom Law Center uh, has been more active in the US. Um, it's typically enforcing BusyBox rather than Linux kernel. BusyBox is a... Linux application that in a single binary performs the role of the majority of applications that you need to boot a Linux system and use it. It comes with like, so it's a cut down shell, it's a implementation of LS, it's an implementation of IF config, that kind of thing. So all of that means that you can boot your system just with BusyBox rather than having to maintain a significant user space binary set. Ironically, um, BusyBox is wildly popular in the embedded field. Ironically, it's so popular that Android re-implemented uh, re BusyBox in order to be able to provide a BusyBox equivalent that was not under the GPL in order to make life easier for their vendors. For reasons that are still unclear to me, BusyBox is sufficiently beloved by the embedded vendors that the majority of Android's tablets ship BusyBox anyway. But, as I said, Software Freedom Law Center has generally been going after BusyBox. Um, it's usually a condition that I believe that uh, settling the case requires providing the source code for everything rather than just BusyBox. So we get Linux code out of this as well. They've had a high-profile success against Westinghouse, who made TVs. Admittedly, um, that was helped by Westinghouse running out of money and not being able to pay lawyers anymore. But anyway, the case ended up with a bunch of TVs being donated to charity in order to settle. 
And there's a bunch of ongoing cases against a large number of vendors. So we have seen people working on this, but it happens anyway. And the main problem with all of these lawsuits is that they take a long time. It doesn't scale very well. If you've got 200 or something infringing vendors, then it's going to take an age to do anything useful. And a bunch of these are probably sufficiently small vendors that they'll have gone out of business before you get anywhere. So are there easier ways to do things? And there are. Uh, you can go to the ICC and make uh, what's called an e infringement e-allegation, where you tell US customs that a device embodies an IP infringement. And that's great. There's records of it. So you can then tell the vendor that you've done this. And that's basically all that happens. It doesn't actually typically get enforced in any way. But it's really, really easy. You just you can do it online. You don't need to speak to anybody. And then you can call up the vendor and say, I filed this paperwork. And now, in principle, customs can seize all these devices when they enter the country. Well, they won't, but they could. And uh, that typically gets some attention from the vendors. Um, that I've used that a couple of times, and companies have then been suddenly a lot more enthusiastic about talking to me. And it gets press, and obviously it looks bad if the press that you're getting about your product is about how it embodies a copyright infringement rather than about it being really awesome. So again, companies are more enthusiastic about making this problem go away afterwards. So that's the by far the easiest thing to do and has some level of uh, benefits associated with it. Digital Millennium Copyright Act was a bunch of law passed uh, around a decade ago in the US. Uh, modified, it, brought, it modifies a lot of US <coughs> copyrights in order to make it easier to use in the digital age. And Mostly it has been seen as a problem for free software. It means that we can't do things like implement technical... Uh, we can't play back DVDs on Linux because the code to do so is also usable for pirating DVDs. And so it constitutes a breach of a technical protection mechanism. That's illegal under US law as a result of this. But one thing is that it also provides something called uh, the, safe harbor, uh, the safe harbor provisions, which are there in order to protect ISPs when an ISP's customer engages in copyright infringement. And the way this works is uh, you send an email or letter to the designated DMCA contact agent at the ISP stating that this work infringes either your copyright or somebody who, or the copyright of somebody you are authorized to act on behalf of, and they have to take that file down. They then notify the customer. The customer can, if they want to, say, no, actually, this is incorrect. We do hold the copyright, and then the file goes back up. But that means that the, the idea here was originally just to ensure that the ISP didn't have responsibility for this. And it's actually, um, it, typically when you send a EMCA takedown notice, the files vanish. And I used this against the MPAA uh, a few years ago when they were hosting a modified version of Ubuntu without any source code. And 
and the uh, the it mysteriously vanished off their website immediately afterwards. The ISP actually sounded kind of concerned about it. It was pretty entertaining. But the this only applies to online distribution. Uh, so you can't use this against physical products. On the other hand, firmware updates are typically distributed online. And one thing that you can generally do is go to the ISP of a company, say, uh, this file contains Linux. It is not being provided in accordance with the license. If you're authorized to act on behalf of the copyright holder, then uh, remove this file. And the ISP will typically remove the file. Often they will remove the file, but not any associated metadata, which means that you can then have devices that will say, there's an update available, and then fail to download the update. And then say, there's an update available, and then fail to download the update, and keep doing that. And then suddenly their technical support lines get a bunch of calls from people saying that their devices don't update anymore. And again, you've got the attention of a company that previously didn't consider this to be a problem. And again, it's really bad press. So this is a pretty straightforward, very easy mechanism for getting the attention of companies. You can't force compliance in this way, but they often behave themselves better afterwards. Uh, so I've done this a couple of times, and it's it's usually worked. Again, companies have suddenly been a lot more enthusiastic about coming compliance afterwards. Then, moving on in order of complexity, um, Section 337 of the uh, Theft Act in US law forbids unfair competition in imported articles. So uh, it's always amazed me how much of US law appears to be associated with acts that I don't know, the Interstate Commerce Act, how do you use that for just about every single thing that's illegal? <laughs> so you can use the section, the three, three, uh, section 337 of this forbids the import of articles that provide unfair competition to US companies. And if you have a domestic industry uh, that is producing something, then you can file with this. There's uh, a hearing involved. It's moderately complicated, but then it can be used to seize these devices at the border as they're being imported into the country. There's kind of a hitch. Um, if the copyright is not registered, then you need to demonstrate that substantial damage to the domestic industry has occurred. And demonstrating that can be kind of awkward. If the copyright is registered, then you don't need to demonstrate that. You just need to demonstrate that a domestic industry exists. So far, this has not been used for enforcement of Linux in any way, shape, or form. Uh, part of the problem there is that the Linux kernel is not registered. Parts of it are. Really? Oh, excellent. Right, okay. I didn't know that. Well, that makes life a lot easier. IBM went through when a certain lawsuit came about and did a lot of that work. Okay. Right. Well, that is good to know. So there is a bunch of code in the Linux kernel that does have registered copyright, which means most of my complaints here are actually no longer relevant. I should probably have researched that better first. So would, it, would, it make some, would it be a good idea to make it easier for people to be aware of how to do that? Yeah, I think it it would be good to be able to ensure that people know. So we originally had the idea of just registering just sort of a smattering of sort of 
section below the limits of Colonel just in case. Mm -hmm. so, but we were looking at it from statutory versus um, right. statutory infringement. So, uh, obviously, the final thing is you can take a. Uh, you can file a lawsuit over infringement of copyright if the work is registered. If the if there is a registered copyright, then you can get statutory damages and fees from the case. Uh, the statutory damages are actually surprisingly big, given that we give the software away for free. So that's nice. This is obviously something where you're going to need a pile of lawyers. Um, probability is that if you do this against most small companies, the small company will probably end up folding rather than actually ever doing anything useful. It's a shame, but there you have it. Uh, so this is probably the biggest stick that we have. And obviously, if you do this, then companies do pay attention. Oddly, though, it seems that even filing a copyright lawsuit doesn't immediately result in companies doing the right thing. They will often, for some reason that's unclear to me, fight it despite them clearly infringing copyright. Uh, so when I say no registered copyright, that's actually untrue, as we've just heard. So uh, ignore that entire thing. Lens has multiple authors. I don't think it's particularly clear whether it's considered a joint work, which <coughs> is a case where everybody has the authority to act on behalf of the of anybody. The problem there is that it would potentially also mean that anybody who held any copyright over Linux could relicense the entire kernel under an arbitrary license. Uh, so it, it is probably preferable to consider Linux as a collective work where the copyright of each individual component remains with whoever authored that individual component. So, a lot of people so um, I don't believe that this has been tested in any meaningful way, but a lot of legal people have decided that we would be able to justify saying that Linux is a collective work. We do have registered individual sections of the code, so that's fine. Ignore that. Linux, as I said, is becoming ubiquitous. The majority of these devices are infringing. Customers are not made aware of their rights. And compliant vendors are at a disadvantage. If you release the source code to your modified version of Linux, then non-compliant vendors can take your work and reduce their development time. And if they don't give anything back, then they're at a competitive advantage over you, unfairly. My personal position is that we have spent long enough engaging in drawn-out lawsuits against a small number of companies. If this were going to be effective, then I don't believe we would see what we currently see, which is general uncompliance. Vendors are unaware of this. Companies are unaware of this we need to do something that makes them aware of their obligations. And that is probably going to involve efforts. It may well involve a lot of higher profile activity. So we can enforce subsections of the kernel. Obviously, uh, the NetFilter case with gplviolations.org is an example of that. And then we can also engage in more guerrilla tactics, like the uh, using the DMCA as a mechanism for making companies' lives awkward. It doesn't force compliance, but suddenly they're aware there is an issue. They're not able to deny that anymore. It's bad PR. Maybe they'll behave themselves. And there is a risk of this turning companies off Linux. Um, my understanding is that when Linksys were violating uh, with a bunch of their devices, 
their response to a lawsuit being filed against them was to move away from Linux on their devices. Um, you know, if companies don't want to ship Linux because they perceive it as a legal risk, then I think that's the right thing for them to do is not to ship Linux. I think it is worth taking the risk of people no longer shipping Linux in order to ensure that we have compliance, in order to ensure that vendors, uh, sorry, in order to ensure that consumers have the rights that they're supposed to have. Well, that risk is also mitigated as long as we have a program, like a compliance program, that tells them how to do it. Yeah, so the Linux Foundation have an open compliance program that is there to make it easier for companies to do the right thing. Uh, (laughs) Obviously, the session this morning was about how to handle a loss of that. So that's pretty much everything I had to say. Um, I would love to see more compliance work going on. I think we're likely to see more in the not-too-distant future. So does anyone have any questions? We have two questions. If you want to come to Bike, I can, but if you don't want to get up, I understand. Sure. Um, well, one, one question is, are there, are there vendors out there that, that will do, basically do compliance for you? Like, come in clean up your project, you, know, you just throw money at them and solve the problem. I, my understanding is that there are companies who will do this. Um, yeah, who will. You can bring in and they'll manage this for you. Yeah. So I think this is something that the capitalist that's, system has already... Yeah, that's, that's, that's an, important, an important thing for people to know if they get into this situation. Right. Yeah, um, so with luck. We'll see, uh, if anything, a larger number of these companies springing up as companies realize that they do need to be compliant. Hi, I'm with OpenLogic, we're one of those companies. What we see when we work with enterprises is this kind of awareness issue and then kind of the cost-benefit issue, right? So it's kind of like, especially with the smaller guys, you know, the overseas, the outsourcing, it's like we're on a thin margin, we can't afford to spend the money, you know, we're not really worried about it. So... What I was thinking on your last option slide, I think there's one option that maybe we haven't fully considered, is it industry, which is you talked about bad PR, what about good PR? How can we, the one thing that does catch people's attention is like the, the lawsuits that happen. Enterprises know about that and that at least gets them to pay attention. How can we take that stick, which is small because we have few people doing enforcement, and instead of trying to make the stick bigger, how can we attach a bigger carrot with that stick? Right. You know, how can we make the, the positive, you know, the, the marketing, the PR point of that so that we multiply that effect and people want to join the bandwagon? And obviously, open compliance um, program for Lakes Foundation is one thing, but I think there's probably more things we could do. And maybe that's something that we could focus on as a, as a group and an industry. Sure. Any more questions? Somebody at the back somewhere. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you, Matthew. So what did you think of the talk, Dan? 
I think it was really interesting, actually. It was it was fascinating and um, not something that, well, certainly not. I've, I haven't heard many people talk about it other than yourself, other than, you know, talk about the whole mechanics of GPL enforcement. We all kind of talk about the ideology of it and how we, you know, we believe in it, or in some cases, some people don't, etc. Uh, but the actual, you know, the, the way that you make it work is really interesting, I think. Yeah, I, well, I, of course, I was so excited when I saw Matthew had submitted that talk because because uh, th- there aren't a lot of people that, that engage in GPL enforcement, and it's it's especially difficult for developers, I think, because uh, it, it's it's not enjoyable work. It's very different from development. It's not like solving interesting technical problems and the kinds of things developers are good at. Uh, and and I certainly have changed my mindset about uh, my approach to work in doing GPL enforcement because I uh, I. I I'm a developer originally, but I've been doing all this GPL enforcement. It's it's, it's pretty boring and it's tedious and it, it takes a lot of effort. Uh, so when a developer takes on and, and really says, I'm going to do some GPL enforcement, it's it's basically um, even uh, deserves more kudos because they're they're actually doing something that's so different from what they do every day that they enjoy uh, to try and, and defend the GPL. And so I I've been really excited that Matthew's been taking this on and, and giving it a serious look. And, and, and he's particularly interested in these Android devices uh, that, that he's seen using Linux. Yeah, there's so many. Android. I mean, he talks about tablets a lot on the, in the talk there. Um, but there's so many Android devices now. As he says, you can go to bed, bathroom, and beyond and pick up a device with Linux on it, which is, which is a surprise. Um, it's very cool that he actually submitted that talk as well because um, – you know, uh, a lot of people might think that you put him up to it, but he's definitely he's coming coming into this from his own kind of perspective as well. Yeah, exactly. And and, and I I mean I've often been seen as the voice of GPL enforcement and all that, and 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 I, I'm glad that he's out there. He completely independent. I mean, he sends me stuff when he finds BusyBox violations. Obviously, sometimes when he looks at an Android device, he sees there's BusyBox, and then he mm-hmm. sends it to me to, to to pursue it on BusyBox's behalf. But um, generally speaking, he's doing this enforcement and work on his own. Um, and and we're coordinated because we just stay in touch. Uh, but uh, but it's his own it's his own initiative. And yeah, I, I haven't put him up to it at all. I, I didn't even. It's funny because I recruited this entire track except for him. He's the one that submitted to this track uh, without any prodding from me. I just uh, the, actually the Linux Foundation people sent me the list of talks, which I was expecting to see all the people I recruited. Uh, and then their math their Matthews talk was there in it, and I was like, that's great. He's I'm so glad he's he's going to speak about this. Yeah, and um, it sounds like it was one of the first talks of the. Day as well is that right is it one of the, the early ones yeah in fact it was it was the first talk i don't know why i don't know how karen and i ended up picking this order that we ended up having his last um i i, I think it was the it was the order in which we got people to give us their uh, slides is sort of how we ended up doing it but yeah his his was the first talk of the day um that day and and it sounds like I mean just to kind of I was going to say set the scene but it's probably a bit pointless after we've played the interview but, but you know what I mean uh, just to set the scene there's a lot of discussion going on in the room there that you, you can hear between uh, kernel developers and other people um, so who who was he actually talking to there when they were talking about copyright assignment within the kernel and and his mistaken belief that there wasn't any individual parts copyrighted and so on uh, so so the, the, there was a, there was a good number of kernel to Linux collaboration summit uh, does attract a number of the Linux developers um, I recall. That Greg KH was in the room for most of the day. Um, uh, Ted Cho was there. I don't know if Ted Cho was there for Matthew's talk. I can't remember. Ted Cho was in, in the room for most of the day, though, so he may have been there as well. 
Um, there was a couple of other kernel developers. There was sort of like a um, well, James Bottomley was in the back uh, with Greg KH. So they were sort. Of, I was sitting up in the front because I was coordinating the track, and then there was this like row of Linux developers in the back behind a behind a um, like a supporting beam, and I, I couldn't really see them. I would just mm-hmm. hear Greg KH just sort of shout something out every once in a while. Uh, but other than that, I I couldn't actually see them all. But I know Greg KH and James Bottomley were back there, and Ted Cho was over on the other side uh, by me. So there was there was a good number of kernel developers in the room, and and. In fact, a number of kernel developers who who care about the GPL and GPL enforcement. I know Greg Cage does. Uh, publicly, people know that uh, he spent some time uh, trying to get uh, Microsoft into compliance with regard to their virtualization yeah. stuff. So, so, so Greg's no stranger to to taking care of the GPL and, and cares about it. And I, I think it's a misconception a lot of people have that the kernel developers all oh, they don't care about the GPL. I, I think there are some that don't. I think there are a lot that that do and don't know what to do, and then there are a few that that know what to do about enforcement and, and do it and. And care about it, Matthew. If, of course, is one of them. Mm, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I recognized. Uh, I thought I recognized Greg's voice straight away. He's got a very kind of deep, uh, distinctive voice. Um, very interesting. Yeah, and I thought uh, one thing that um, that I found really, really kind of fascinating was this this thing thought of using the DMCA, which we all kind of demonize in a, a slightly positive way in in uh, helping to you uh, to enforce the GPL. I mean, uh, as we've said, a copyright is part of copyleft if you if you like if you like because we need the the copyright laws if we're going to use them for copyleft but um i mean this is something that you'll have a lot more kind of uh, personal involvement with but it, have you ever used the dmca and, and is that common in the u.s um so so uh so i have on occasion used it um it was a tough uh, for 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 busy box enforcement it was a tough decision uh the few times that i have used it uh, obviously and now first of all to be clear um the dmca is a rather long law and it has lots of different things in it and the provisions that people are most upset about um, really don't relate at all to GPL enforcement because those are the provisions that refer to, uh, uh, to if you have any sort of uh, technological measure uh, basically DRM that stops you from inf- from inf- from copying a file that, that makes it a it makes it a felony uh, if you circumvent that. Now, obviously, that has nothing to do with GPL enforcement because in GPL we encourage people to modify and copy the software. We want people to share it, so we would never use that kind of provision just because it's incompatible with what Copyleft's trying to do. Copyleft's trying to encourage copying, but there are other parts of the DMCA, and that's what Matthew was talking about, and, and this DMCA takedown stuff. Um, is is something and and this was this was designed to basically require internet service providers uh, and this is why things disappear from YouTube if people have seen videos go up on YouTube and disappear it's basically Google implementing the DMCA requirements because if you have a notice as as a service provider from a copyright holder that says hey you have to take this down because uh, because it's infringing my copyright there's a whole series of, of routine uh, systems that a copy that I'm sorry that an ISP has to use when they get a letter like that from the copyright holder. So they have to first take it down and then they have to inform the person who put it up and explain to the person who put it up that they've gotten this letter and then the person who put it up can dispute that. And it's a, it's a whole series mm. of, there's a whole system. Um, excuse me. <laughs> so uh, that system uh, is uh, is what is what Matthew's talking about using. And, and I've used it on occasion in enforcement. And, and it, it, I mean, this is the ultimate irony of GPL enforcement because we're using, as I like to say, the tools of the oppressor against the oppressor because the copyright law was created by people who are, are trying to promulgate stuff that most people in the free software world, certainly in the free culture world, 
don't really agree with. They make copyright way too long, and they make copyright law too uh, expansive. Uh, but in the end, uh, copyleft is, as you say, depending on copyright. So we, we have to use the tools that are there, which are the tools of copyright. Uh, but every time I, I sort of dip into looking at another um, area of copyright law and using it for GPL enforcement, I, I certainly get the willies and I'm sort of like, well, do I really want to, do we really want to do this? And, and, and I think used sparingly, it's not that bad um, because it, 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 is, it is stopping somebody from violating the GPL. Um, the main issue with the DMCA takedown, I, I only like to use it as, a, uh, as an attention grabber, i.e. to get the attention of a violator that's ignoring because it only hmm. the only thing it does is causes them to stop distributing and uh, stopping somebody from distributing gpl software is always like really a, the consolation prize of gpl enforcement because your goal is hmm. to get them into compliance to give people source code and if all you do is get them to stop distributing well you haven't really reached the goal because you've just stopped people from getting the software and the whole point of gpl is to get the software to as many people as possible with source code of course so it's it's a tough trade-off but I think I think Matthew's experiencing what I've experienced too, which is the just deep frustration in how difficult it is to enforce the GPL on a systematic basis, and is looking for any tool he can find. And I don't I don't blame him for that at all. Yeah, I mean, obviously lawsuits are, are very long, often very long and expensive and, and difficult. And especially as an individual, it's kind of difficult to bring a lawsuit against um, a large, large company. So in some ways, it might be interesting to, to look at these alternatives, as you say, that people can kind of do themselves. And, and the things he said, like just reporting the um, violation and, and things like that can make a big difference. Yeah, I agree completely. And and as I said, the DMCA thing can be a real attention grabber. I, I, I've used it in cases where I couldn't get a response from the violator. And if you go to their ISP and get them to take the firmware down off their website, uh, and the ISP has to do that because the DMCA requires them to do that, basically it gets their attention. And when you haven't gotten your email's response, when you've been emailing them saying, you're violating the GPL, we need you to get the source code out there. Uh, if they won't answer you, using the DMCA just as an attention grabber works great. And then, of course, if they come into compliance, you can give them permission again to distribute, and they can put it right back up. Uh, so so it's, it's really uh, useful as an attention grabber. And that's another one that uh, Matthew mentioned is this idea of using various different um, – international trade agreements, uh, which I haven't done at all, and he's looked into some of, of trying to stop things at the border uh, when they come off the boat, because there's various different uh, 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 international trade rules about copyright infringement as well. Um, and so that's another, and that's not actually copyright law, that's international trade law, uh, at, you know, as it relates to copyright law. So it's another area where you can use it as an attention grabber, and, and, and I, I, I guess I kind of, I, I have a weird feeling about that. I kind of like the idea of like stopping the boat in the in the dock and saying, no, these things violate the GPL. You can't unload this stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, on the other hand, it's, uh, it's disruptive and you don't want to be, I mean, our goal in GPL enforcement, we never want to disrupt people's businesses. We, we want their business to continue. We just want it to continue in compliance. So, so mm. it's, it's a trade-off again about whether or not you want to disrupt somebody's business. And the, and the only reason I can justify disrupting somebody's business is if they're ignoring you. If you're saying, hey, you need to come into compliance and they just won't answer you. Then I can see using a strategy that might disrupt their business yeah i mean that that's something that i know you would uh, strongly advocate is is trying to at least uh, talk to people first and, and get a friendly response because as you say it's not about being uh, nasty and particularly wanting to stop them doing business at all um it's more you know it's more a case of trying to get them into compliance uh, something that i thought in, was interesting as well in, in in the talk there was um 
the, this idea that it might put people off using Linux. And, and uh, I think Matt cites the Linksys case where um, I've actually got one of those Linksys routers, which now you can buy with Linux on them, um, but only because of the, the um, you know, you can put open firmware on there, but only because of the GPL uh, violation and the fact that they had to release the code. And then they quickly moved to something else. So do you think that's a real danger that, that companies will move to other things? I think it's always a, a challenge. I, I think it's complicated, and 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 you don't want to scare people away from using free software. Where I come down on this is basically that I know very commonly that that people are violating the GPL because they can get away with it, and and when you have that sort of situation. You sort of have to to live with the fact that some people might be turned off of it. I mean, obviously, it's easier to use BSD software. That's always been true. If you take FreeBSD and you modify it and put it in a product, your obligations are very minimal. You basically have to display some copyright notices from the developers in your documentation or, or, in, or, or somewhere in the software. Um, and that's, and that's mm. a really easy compliance requirement. And, and if you want easy, BSD is the way to go. Some, uh, sometimes GPL compliance uh, requires effort and requires attention. And so uh, I, I think Matthew's right that it can turn people off and we have to do a trade-off. But on the other hand, if the people we're turning off are people that would otherwise violate the GPL, I'm not too worried about that. What I would be worried about is people who misunderstand, who, for example, think that compliance with GPL is hard. It's not really hard. It's, it's hard once you violate it because a lot of times you haven't done the things throughout the process that are required and therefore you have to go back and figure out where the source code is. I mean, sometimes they've lost the source code. I mean, it's really horrible, but it <laughs> happens. But if you do it from the start, it's pretty pretty easy. And, and that's what we try to educate people about is make GPL compliance part of your regular processes and it won't be that big of a burden. Mm. Yeah, that was an interesting uh, point that, that Matt made um, on his slide. That, yeah, where he said it's easy to get into compliance, um, you know, if you think about it in advance. Um, he also talked about the uh, Linux Foundation's compliance program and stuff like that, which I have to confess is not something I really knew a lot about. So is that helping in this issue? Uh, uh, to, be, to be completely honest, I haven't seen it helping yet. Um, okay. But... But I think it's a good idea. And so I would love it if the Linux Foundation basically will take on the burden of education to, uh, to companies to explain to them how to comply with the GPL. Obviously, that's a big part of what I do in the middle of GPL enforcement. Basically, a lot of GPL enforcement is teaching people how to comply properly. Uh, and if Linux Foundation can come along and be that teacher, it saves my work, it's going to save Matthew's work when he does enforcement and so forth. So I think that's great if they do it. I, I think the problem, and this is a problem that we've all faced, it's not it's not the Linux Foundation's fault, it's, it's a perennial problem that we don't know how to solve, is that a program like Linux Foundation's is only going to reach people who already know that there's something they have to do. So Linux Foundation will probably help those who are already basically in compliance comply a little bit better and more easily, but I don't know how they're going to reach the people who don't even know Linux Foundation exists. A lot of the violators I run into don't even know software is in their product because they got it from somewhere who got it from somewhere and uh, they got it from someone who got it from somewhere and they don't even know that it's not just a hardware product that has software in it too. And those people wouldn't even know the name Linux if you said it to them. So, so those people are not going to reach out to the Linux Foundation and buy, and buy their training courses. So uh, I don't think Linux Foundation can reach those. I can't reach them either except through the enforcement process. Basically, I see them in violation and then I 
do an enforcement action or Matthew does an enforcement action against them and then suddenly they are aware, are aware and, I, and I have referred GPL violators to the Linux Foundation program to get some education. Um, the problem is they often don't want to pay for it. I mean, Linux Foundation does charge for that and and they want right. they, they basically don't want to pay for anything because they're, they're basically, a lot of these companies are trying to cut costs so much and, and they're running such thin margins that any additional cost is not acceptable. Um, and the thing is, is that they're basically able to cut their costs so much because they're violating GPL. It's not like GPL compliance costs that much. I've sort of uh, rule of thumb estimated that about for about eight to ten thousand per product, you can uh, for basically per release, you can make sure that it's in compliance. But um, so, uh, sometimes if they're only selling so you know a couple hundred units of a device, well, that's a pretty expensive thing. If they're selling millions of units, that's basically no cost at all. Um, but for places that want to sell just very few units, it's tough. And and that's the nature of GPL software. You have to make sure you engineer the product in compliance. And if if, uh, if you can't afford to do that, then, well, try using FreeBSD. I mean, I think people don't use FreeBSD because uh, it's not as adaptable as Linux is, uh, ultimately. Mm, or, or, well, yeah, I mean, uh, and as, as uh, Matt said in the talk, probably doesn't run on as many platforms as, uh, as Linux as well, which is obviously important these days. Um, I think it was interesting that he talked about, um, as you said, small companies there and the, the cost and stuff. It's, it's obviously a lot different approaching someone like, I don't know, Google as opposed to, you know, a small little um, software house and uh, and the, the danger that the companies might fold as a result of the GPL enforcement. So, I don't know, what do you, what do you think about that? Oh, that's a, that's a you're asking me tough questions, Dan. <laughs> yeah, so. I am, I'm, I'm grilling you. <laughs> I'm grilling yeah. you, sorry. So, yeah, it, it is, it is a a tough thing. Uh, I mean, I, I I never want that to happen, and I try to do everything I can in enforcement to try to prevent that. The thing is, is I've run into companies where they are basically able to run their business uh, on the back of GPL violation. Um, companies mm. where they just go to China and they buy OEM boards and shove them in a white box and sell them into the US and Europe. Well, the thing is, is that their their failure to comply is basically how they're they're running their business on the margin of failure to comply. Mm. And in that case, should they really be in business? I don't know. I, I don't. I don't think if they. I don't. I, I don't think so, because if the only reason your business is profitable is because you violate the GPL, um, then is your business mm. really legitimate? It's it's. I think it's a. I think it's a complicated question. The thing is, compliance gets more expensive the longer you don't do it. So if you have a product out there in the market and you're not worrying about compliance, it gets more expensive all the time. So a lot of times, by the time I find a company in violation, it's so expensive for them to come to go back in time and try to get back into compliance for older products. It, it becomes a real burden. Um, if they if they engineered the products from the start, it would they could build businesses. I mean, it's obvious that you can build businesses doing g- mm. things in a compliant way. Lots of small companies do, and there's lots of small router manufacturers and small name your favorite device manufacturers that are doing that. Uh, it's just the ones that don't. Well. They uh, they're 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 basically they're basically undercutting their competitors, and that's another thing I bring up a lot in GPL enforcement is it's not fair to the people that do comply because they're they're I mean it's not an it's not a huge cost, but it's it's a little bit of a cost uh, to be to make sure you're always in compliance with GPL. You obviously have to have somebody paying attention to it. So the companies that don't comply. They're basically undercutting their competitors who do comply, and so I, I think it's really important we enforce the GPL. To, to make sure that those who do the right thing are not being undercut by those who don't in the market by mm. sh- selling cheaper products. 
Yeah, I mean, I know that that's something I've heard you, you say before, and I was I was pleased to hear uh, to hear that in the talk as well. I mean, I, an analogy that comes into my mind. I don't think if this is particularly well, it's definitely not accurate. But I don't know if it's particularly fair. But if I were to set up a a company where I sell, you know, I don't know, stolen televisions or something, um, and then the government came along and, and arrested me and said, you can't do that, you're selling stolen televisions, no one would complain and say, but that's not fair, the guy's just trying to sell the stuff, you know, and if at the same time, another company selling legitimate televisions obviously will have higher costs, so it's not a, not a great comparison, but as I said, you know, it is the kind of a little bit of a parallel there, I think, that it, yeah, they are I mean, just enforcing the law. Yeah, I mean, it, it is it is similar. I mean, I mean, the better example is is somebody selling DVDs that are that are infringing the copyrights of the movies. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I, I you know, I think that, that I think commercial copyright infringement is is really wrong, uh, no matter what you're doing. I mean, I mean, people argue about non-commercial infringement. That's very different. People who are making money off of infringement, I mean, there's no reason they should be able to do that. You could say, well, you know, this person's uh, this person's able to run a Netflix because he can make as many copies of the DVDs he wants and rent them out and and. Netflix, you know, Netflix actually complies with the licenses for the movies and only gets as many copies as they as they license. Uh, uh, well, I mean, obviously, it's the same. It's the same sort of analogy that people could say, well, he why can't he compete? Well, because he's he's infringing the copyright. Um, and so and so I, I think that that's that's a, a slightly better analogy. The other thing I want to bring up when you talk about the police coming and arresting him, I actually am really against uh, copyright infringement ever being criminal. I mean, we talked about how the DMCA makes some types of copyright infringement a felony, and I, I think that's really wrong. And I, I wrote a letter about the ACTA, which is the international... Uh, uh, yeah, the trade agreement thing, isn't it? I forget the, the full title of it. Yeah, I do too. But basically, it's trying to... Uh, when U.S. was uh, looking to approve ACTA, which I think it ultimately did, I wrote a letter uh, in the comment period saying basically that I do copyright enforcement uh, as part of my GPL enforcement, and I see no reason whatsoever that it needs to be criminal. I, I just think the idea idea of getting arrested for copyright infringement is just wrong. It, it, it's a civil dispute. I mean, all our copyright enforcement, all our GPL enforcement, it's civil. We, we When we sue, we're suing in civil court uh, because of a civil dispute. It's not like we bring the police to come and arrest some company. I, I just think that that's, that's wrong to make it criminal because I don't think it's a crime. I think it's a, it's an, it's an injustice in the sense that, um, that, that, that in the way that lots of civil matters are injustice. You, you sue somebody in civil court because they've done something wrong to you and you want um, to be uh, to have recompense uh, done, taken care of by the court, uh, but the idea of, of of the police getting involved, I just think that's wrong. I don't think there's any reason, and that's where I really, you know, a lot of times people compare. Well, you know, you're like the MPAA, you're enforcing copyrights. Well, uh, the MPAA will happily use criminal statute and and, and arresting people uh, to enforce copyrights, and that I think it's just it's just it's not what copyright should be. It's copyright's a civil matter between two parties. One party says you infringe my copyright. The other party says, "No, I didn't," and then it's a civil dispute. You, you figure out who's right and who's wrong. Uh, it's it's not mm. it's not right to, to get the police involved. It's just I just think that's horrible. Yeah, I mean it, it's a, it's a, <clears throat> it's an interesting issue. A lot of people. I mean, we're getting a little bit off off topic of the talk, but um, a lot of people refer to this idea of. Um, stealing copyright infringement as stealing and uh, it's particularly like the MPAA would say that and uh, yeah it's not really stealing because you're not depriving the original owner of their copy you're you are making a, a fraudulent copy maybe but you're not depriving the owner of their copy um so it's kind of strange but um i thought uh, speaking of the MPAA it was i was really uh, I, I had a, a laugh at matt's comments about uh, about approaching the MPAA about their gpl in, uh, in violation through uh, using ubuntu on their website or something um, 
uh, some clapping in the room as well. I noticed. Yeah, I was one of the ones clapping. Uh, obviously, I mean, I, I think that uh, I, I think that the, that it was quite ironic uh, that the MPAA would screw that up uh, because it's it's uh, it, it, you know, they, they're so vehement about copyright uh, uh, enforcement uh, and and the fact that they not only not only infringe copyright commercially infringe copyright, they made a commercial product that, that infringed mm. copyright. Um, it, it's it's a classic example of of, uh, of uh, basically the, the hypocrisy um, in, in doing that uh, that they would they would screw that up and, and and the fact that they didn't they didn't really I mean I, I felt like it, it wasn't like they said oh we're sorry we screwed up and I mean it was an enforcement effort it took it took effort to get them into compliance um, and the fa- and what the product did was already pretty nasty anyway and so the fact that they were using free software infringing its copyrights to basically um, get, get take over your computer. <laughs> I mean, that was that was just sort of the icing on the cake. It's it just sort of shows the kind of sort of despicable organization that they are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can't I can't agree more. I don't. Th- I think we're we're very much in in agreement on that. Um, so, I mean, I I really enjoyed listening to the talk. Um, anything else you want to say about it before we move on? Um, no, I don't think so. I, I mean, I really appreciate uh, Dan uh, that you uh, you were able to fill in for Karen. It was so nice of you to join, and I, I hope our listeners enjoy uh, enjoy hearing producer Dan's voice uh, for the for the first time on Free as in Freedom. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's been a, a lot of fun to, to to be here. So, I mean, I heard you obviously while I was editing. I heard you talking about this last time. Um, is that the last of the talks from the, uh, the collaboration summit now? Yeah, that's the that's the last talk that we had a recording of. It's not obviously there were other talks at the collaboration summit. I only got recordings of the ones that were on the track I was chairing. So, um, <clears throat> so that's the last mm. one we have a recording of. So that's uh, finally uh, months later we we finished the shows with that. Um, so uh, so we'll look at uh, a different topic next week. I, I'm looking at, at maybe trying to find audio from one of my other talks um, uh, just to make it easy for us. But if not, uh, I think uh, uh, Dan and I will just uh, do a regular show and we'll uh, we'll have a we'll have one more show with the two of us, uh, which will be fun. Mm-hmm. And then Karen will be back. Um, uh, speaking of uh, of Karen's uh, being away, so um, so a lot of people may not know this uh, because it was pro- it's probably not in the same uh, sort of press area that people our listeners tend to read. Uh, but Karen got some, a little bit of press for her uh, wedding invitation. Uh, did you see any of that, Dan? Oh, really? No. I mean, I've heard that. Yeah, I heard she made a song. Uh, her and uh, Mike made a song. And, and and yeah, sorry. In case anyone doesn't know, you've probably heard this at the end of each song. But uh, Mike Tarantino is the guy who does the music. For this show, and she's also the—he's uh, also the guy that Karen's about to marry. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we'll, yeah. And we'll have married by the time folks hear this. So, um, so, <laughs> so they, they, yeah, they—they because they he did the music for us. I mean, Karen's basically uh, she's marrying the the musician from our show, um, and mm. uh, and so so they did a song uh, to as an invitation, and the, and the wedding invitation was actually a, a record player. Um, it was that you could construct the record player and and play oh, wow. the song. Um, now I, I got an invitation. Um, I, I did not actually do the construction because. Because we just downloaded the song uh, from the website and listened to it, uh, but, but it actually it came with a little needle, and you could uh, you could build the wedding invitation into a record player and then play the song. Um, and this was this got some uh, the designer that did it got some press uh, for designing it. It was a um, I will link to some of the some of the stories in the show notes uh, and. Um, 
And also, as our as our uh, final thing after we have the regular closing music, uh, we're going to play the uh, the song from Karen's wedding invitation as well. So uh, so hopefully, folks will enjoy hearing that and uh, and hearing uh, Mike and Karen and invite people to their wedding. Although you, you, I'm sorry, you can't go. By the time you hear this, it'll be over. <laughs> um, actually, with all this press, Karen was kind of worried that random people might show up to the wedding. Yeah, yeah. So so that I, I heard this. She's going to get paparazzi, paparazzi outside trying to get pictures. Yeah, I don't <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, actually, Karen. Mentioned mentioned that there's now going to be a uh, they, they did get somebody to be a bouncer at the door so they're actually going to be checking names oh, uh, wow. at the door because they are a little worried because people heard about this and <laughs> I think in some of the stories they actually said where it was um, I, I, I did see most of the stories I saw it was blocked out where the wedding was um, mm-hmm. but uh, I mm-hmm. think some of the stories that got out there they said where the wedding was so so she was a little bit worried so so they'll be when I get there tonight uh, it's tonight where, you know as I record this uh, I, I'll be I'll have to get through the bouncer and improve that I'm supposed wow. to be at the wedding. <laughs> Excellent. I mean, so so we'll, we'll be able to talk about that next time then, and, and see if anyone interesting did show up. Uh, anyone from the fans? Yeah. Um, very cool. Yeah. And this is under Creative Commons as well. Uh, CC by SA, I think, which is which is great. Yep. It's, it matches the license of the show, so uh, so we can uh, so people can uh, do uh, can listen to it and and uh, make copies and all the usual things that CC by SA lets you do. Excellent, yeah. So um, we'll be back next time then, in a, in a couple of weeks. Uh, yep, yeah, you and me uh, are in two weeks. Yeah, you're not used to this, because uh, Linux Outlaws, you're every week, but uh, Freedom's and Freedom's every two weeks. So you're, you're used to saying being back next week, aren't you? I do tend to say, and I also, I, I know you and Karen have regularly discussed this, but I do sometimes say, we'll see you next week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which I know is, yeah. That, that relates to your uh, your Linux Outlaws uh, issue of keeping an eye on everything. So, uh, so it, it does. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. We're the world's only visual podcast that doesn't have video. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, yeah, we're metaphorical, maybe. Uh, very cool. So, um, yeah, uh, thank you very much for uh, for listening and, and joining us. And, uh, yeah, and, and stay tuned tuned for uh, for the song the wedding song at the end which is great free and freedom is produced by dan lynch of halfbakemedia.com thanks to mike tarantino for our theme music Free as in Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Please provide any feedback to obcast at faif.us. <laughs>